Hey everybody, welcome back to Patriot to the Core Podcast. I'm Thad Forrester and this is episode number 50-5-0. So thank you for taking this long journey with me. Most people, they hit 50 episodes a lot sooner than I did, but you know, I'm a part-timer. So every two weeks I release a new episode pretty much and I throw in some bonus episodes every once in a while. Glad I've been able to make it for well over a year and a half now and I'm excited to have Tim Larkin today. Uh, Tim gave me a lot of time which I really appreciated. So I split this one up into two parts. This is part one, and we're going to go into detail about his background. I didn't know much about it. So all I knew was that he had gone to the Navy. uh, He was in BUDS, trained to be a SEAL, and he got a burst burst or busted. I don't know the right tense of the the verb. I'm not even going to look it up. But he busted his eardrum in an underwater drill. Immediately he was done with BUDS, and he had to move on to another job. So he finished out his career in the Navy, did some pretty cool stuff eventually started target focused training and that's going to be more of part two is what target focused training is but tim is a new york times best-selling author he's been featured on multiple news outlets not only in the united states but also in europe and in china uh, he's been endorsed by tony robbins glenn beck uh, plenty others been on good morning america and you, you can see him all over the internet but i want to give you a scenario that he talks about to build up to this first interview and by the way, if you're a big Tim Larkin fan, you're going to really like episode one, this, this episode, because of the detail he goes into in his background. Here is the scenario. He says, imagine if on Friday you get info that, a, that on Monday morning, a loved one is going to be facing asocial violence. By the way, he's going to talk about the difference between social and asocial violence. Uh, you're going to know that the threat is bigger, faster, and stronger. You're going to know that, th- that the threat carries weapons, and there's going to be more than one. Knowing that, you have two days to work with this loved one because you're not going to be there when the violence happens. They're going to have to deal with this themselves. Knowing that, what would you train them? That's the mindset that he had going into really starting target-focused training and modifying his training from what he had done in the past, which is actually all very good, but just kind of specializing more into what he does now. He says that violence is a tool and we all should know how to use it. I know that may sound harsh to some of you people, but there, there is a reality that there are violent people out there, and we should be able to protect ourselves and our families. Also, Tim does give us, for the listeners, if you'll just go to his website, if you go to whenviolenceistheanswer.com, he actually it, he wants you to buy the book, but you don't have to. If you'll just sign up and on his site, you'll, you'll get 10 videos for free. They're, they're short videos that talk about their different methods for injuring someone and protecting yourself. So just go to his website, whenviolenceistheanswer.com, sign up, put your email address there and your name, I think just maybe your first name, and you'll get those videos. Enjoy, Tim, part one. Okay, well, Tim, I'd love to get into your background first before we talk about what you do these days, uh, and I don't know a whole lot about your your earlier background. I mean, I know you were in the Navy. I, I've never known exactly how long you were, so will you talk about your background uh, in the Navy and even before and why you even joined yeah, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stay streamlined on this because uh, you know I mean I've had a fascinating life. Of course, everybody wants to hear about it. Um, I do. But but uh, I was a Navy brat, so my dad was a an officer in the Navy, and we literally lived all around the country overseas. Um, I would call San Diego my home. One of my dad's last commands was at 32nd Street. Um, which is a Navy base in San Diego, and we were lived in Navy housing, officer housing, over in Coronado, California. And literally, my backyard looked out, you know, there was a Silver Strand Highway, 
that you could see beyond the chain link fence in my backyard. And then on the other side, there was a bob wire chain link fence, the other side of the highway. And it held basic underwater demolition school where the seals train. And I, I looked out, my backyard literally looked out across at the uh, obstacle course, you know, the infamous obstacle course that Bud's had. And so I was approximately 12 years old when I got introduced to the SEAL teams. And that was in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s, when they didn't have the prestige and the, the uh, publicity that they have now these days. Back then, um, the SEALs were kind of looked down upon in the Navy. Um, they were kind of like the redheaded stepchild uh, of the Navy because they didn't really, you know, special operations hadn't taken the prominence um, that it has now. And uh, back then, you were seen as a little bit crazy if you wanted to, you know, go in the teams. But what hooked me was my dad, after moving us into uh, the new home, had to take off right away. He went off on a cruise. Uh, it was a short cruise, but it was gonna, he's been gone about six weeks. And uh, one Sunday night, we had all just gone to bed, and all of a sudden, across the street, everything just blew up. I mean, there was automatic gunfire, fireworks, explosions. It was just crazy. And uh, we literally thought there was an invasion going on. And that's when my next-door neighbor uh, ran over, who became you know, m- one of my mom's best friends. She came over with a, uh, a, a bottle of wine and two glasses, and she's, I remember her yelling into the window, Carol, Carol, don't worry, don't worry, it's just the SEALs. And that was my first introduction, and I was like, whoa, who are these guys? And so then, of course, being a 12-year-old, you can just do whatever you want on base, basically. Um, and we were riding around on our bikes, and we got to you know, start to meet some of these guys. And then, of course, we jumped the fence and started playing on the obstacle course and getting repeatedly kicked off. And uh, But in doing so, after a while they would allow us to hang out. We could watch training and then they would let us screw around on the obstacle course after some of the instructors were actually really good guys. And they patiently kind of asked our question, you know, answered our questions and stuff like that. But I got to find out during those years that I lived there, everything about SEAL training. I was fascinated by it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe a job like that existed. And so as a young Navy kid, I told, I probably told my dad, that's what I want to do. I want to become a SEAL team. And he said, okay, great, but you got to go to college first. And uh, so I, I thought, hey, no problem. And I got my college scholarship. I went to, I went, I did an ROTC scholarship, went to USC. Um, I came out and uh, when it was my year, uh, you know, like I said, they really didn't want, especially any scholarship students, to be in the SEAL teams because they saw it as a wasted scholarship. They wanted everybody back then to be in the nuclear Navy, so either submarines um, or flight, you know, like a, uh, you know, like the uh, aircraft carriers, the nuclear aircraft carriers. That was that was where the Navy was investing its best minds, and uh, I was seen as kind of a rebel because I wanted to go to uh to there there were only two officer slots available for the my graduation year um so i i literally had two thoughts 25 over 2500 guys had selected uh had had well they made the cut to be to be evaluated at you know we all made the basic cut and 
I just knew that, you know, I would have to, I would have to do something with that kind of competition. I'd have to do something to differentiate myself. And I decided because I had a friend that was back at American University in DC to fly back to DC and go see the detailer. And the detailer is the uh, officer who makes the final decision. He looks at all the applications and then he makes the decision. But I had learned on all my years of doing my, you know, intel at uh, basic underwater demolition school, I learned the real power there was actually the secretary of the detailer because she had been there. Detailers come in for every couple every couple of years. She had been there for over 25 years. So she really was the one that um, had a lot of influence. You know, she really knew the program. And so her name was Margaret. I had been working on Margaret for at least three years prior to me going out there. I would call her up, introduce myself. I was, you know, I was completely obnoxious. She probably, uh, she was very patient with me, but, um, and I told her, you know, I, my grand plan, I said, Hey, I happened to come out to, I said I was visiting my friend. I wasn't visiting my friend, but I said, Hey, I'm, I'm coming out to visit. Anyways, do you think maybe I could come by and the, the commander's name that was the detailer was Commander Golay? And, I said, do you think I could at least come by and introduce myself to Commander Golay? She goes, oh, Midshipman Larkin, that's not a good idea. And I said, I, I know, Margaret, but, you know, I mean, I've talked to you for so long. I, I, if I could at least come by and just say hi to you. And she said, you're not supposed to come by, and I'm not going to tell you right now that that's something you can do. If you get out here, you can call me again. And so I, I took that as a, as, as a cagey way of her saying yes. Yes, you winked. Yeah. And so I, I took the bait, came out on a flight, you know, stayed at my buddy's place in D.C. Um, and I just showed up at her office. I mean, I told her I was coming, but I, I just showed up. And I think I think I could tell just by their response when they saw me show up my little midshipman uniform and everything. They I could tell they were surprised. They were surprised that I actually showed up. And uh, but, you know. She said, listen, you can sit right there on the couch, she said, but I don't think he's going to see you. He's very busy. And so this was on like a, it was like a Tuesday, Tuesday day. He didn't see me. I sat all day Tuesday, all day Wednesday, just about all day Thursday. And the Thursday, about literally it's about 1600, about four o'clock. He comes out of his office, finally looks over at me, says, Ms. Shipman, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, sir, I, I just wanted five minutes of your time. He goes, why should I even talk to you? And I said, well, sir, I don't want to hear it. He goes, uh, you can get in my office. I'll be back, and we'll talk. So sure enough, I go in his office. I'm sitting down sweating bullets. He comes in. I stand back up. He goes, sit down. Midshipman, why are you here? And I said, well, sir, I know you got a tough decision to make. You've got a lot of people to look at, and I know your biggest worry is you don't want to um, give a slot to somebody that's going to quit. And I just want to let you know, sir, that no matter what happens, the one thing I'll never do is quit in training. And he goes, is that it? And I said, yes, sir, that's it. And he said, all right, get out of my office. And so <laughs> after my third day, I'm walking out going, oh, man, I blew it. And I start walking out and I say goodbye to Margaret and say goodbye to the, the, the couple staff members that were there. And I start walking down the hallway. And, I mean, walking down the annex building, it's the, it's where the Navy annex is. It's a long, long hallway walk. And I was just walking down going, oh, man, I'm done. I blew it. I never should have come out here. And I hear somebody running up behind me saying, Nishim and Larkin. 
And it was one of the JGs that worked there, Lieutenant JG. And he was just there temporarily while he was waiting to go to his command. He was working at the detailer's office. And he goes, hey, I, I couldn't let you leave. He goes, I just want you to know, you had it after the first day. We just wanted to see how long you're going to you know, stay around. And it taught me a really good lesson because, you know, and the reason I'm, I'm setting everything up here is, uh, uh, you know, it, this was a changing point in my life. Was, was one thing I learned was, uh, you know, regardless of, of anything, if you're really interested in something, you really want to do something, don't leave anything on the table. I mean, I, I know that what I did uh, back in those early days, you know, the fact that I did that, it was unheard of to do what I did uh, back then. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just, I, I wanted it that bad. And, and the cool part about it was I knew after leaving there, even when I was dejected before the young officer came up and talked to me, I knew I'd done everything I possibly could do to let people know I was serious about that slot and that I, I was qualified and that I wanted to do it. So even if I didn't get it, I could easily sit there and say, well, you know, everything within my power, I did. But why did you yeah. think you had blown it after he said, okay, get out of my office? Did you think oh, he didn't say the right was, words? It was typical hard-ass stuff. It was typical. I think he... I think he thought I was gaming the system. This is in my head. In my head, it was like, who's this obnoxious kid, you know, standing out here? And, you know, um, and I wasn't obnoxious. or This is just me. You know, your self-talk uh, oftentimes it was just wrong. And it's an intimidating place. You know, it was an intimidating for a young guy, young midshipman, especially. It was, it was really intimidating. Um this literally is where all the decisions, it wasn't just for new guys going to buds. This is where every decision was made on the detailer was the guy that assigned every seal officer their next deal, you know? So where, what you're going to, what team you're going to go to, what slot you're going to fill, what embassy positions open, you know, anything there, it's all out of the detailer's office. So it's a pretty influential office. Um, and, uh, it, that, that's kind of what I thought. Now, what was great was I just – I got one of the two slots. I go to training, and I kill it. I absolutely kill it in training. Um, I was bigger, faster, stronger. I had an unfair advantage because, of course, I had all the in-house knowledge from knowing various team members and instructors for years as a young kid. I knew each evolution. I knew what was coming. I knew how to hide food. I knew – you know, what to worry about, what to, you know, what to cruise on, how to take care of my guys because, because I was the officer, so I, I was, you know, the boat captain. And, uh, my team, you know, we, we just, we did great. You know, I, I, we ended up, uh, in the first evolution, the first, uh, 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 section of training is where they do Hell Week. And we, you know, my, my team, my boat team won Hell Week. Um, and, you know, the cool part about that is you got secured, you got let let go a day early from everybody else if you, like, win all the evolutions because it's a complete competition between boat crews all week. And because of the knowledge that I had, I was able to really, you know, help our team, you know, just just continue to, to, to win and, um, you know, get our points and everything. So that So that was great. Rest of training was really, I just breezed through it. It was really, um, I was really basically unstoppable and I, I kind of was arrogant and I let everybody kind of know that. A couple weeks before training, um, 
I even we even had our selections down on where we were going. I was going to a prime spot back then, which was SEAL Team Four. They were the uh, counter narcotics team, and uh, they were working all the counter narcotics back then. Um, and so that's that was where all the action was happening back when I was in. I was going to go there, and of course I had my whole thing scoped out. Uh, it was just going to be a couple of years there, and then of course I was going to SEAL Team Six. You know, because that's just a natural for somebody like me. You know, this is my my 21 year old head. You know, mm-hmm. telling my telling myself how everything's going to happen. And I went to go do a dive, and it was just a very almost like an admin dive. It really wasn't a a big deal, um, but I was congested that day, and I already had some ear issues. But on this particular day, because I didn't want to redo this dive. Um, because you would have had to give up a weekend. Um, you know, I would have had to come like on a Saturday morning or something to redo the dive. I, uh, I just said, I'm just going to push my way through this. No problem. Well, sure enough, uh, just like on top of the water, we have waves underneath the water. You have wave movement as well. And I was focused on, we were doing a traditional UDT mission where we were just assessing, uh, you know, a, a landing area underwater, making sure it's clear of obstacles and stuff like that. And I was holding on to one of the obstacles uh, when I was doing an assessment. And sure enough, this wave of water hit my ear perfect to where it burst my eardrum. Uh, cold water literally felt like a spike went into the top of my head. And then emptied out, you know, all the warm fluid emptied out. As it was emptying out of my ear, I lost all sense of balance. I went into vertigo. And uh, luckily, there's a tow line close by. I was able to pull myself up the tow line. But they said when my head hit the surface, it was flapping against the surface of the water uncontrollably. They, they dragged me on top. There's blood coming out of my ears. And... I knew the corpsman. There was a corpsman right there because we always had corpsmen in case there were accidents. And I I knew this particular corpsman. He was an instructor corpsman, but I knew him pretty well. And I could tell by the look on his face after he looked at my ears that it was really bad. I I could just tell. Um, You know, they got me back there. They stabilized me. And basically in an instant, my ability to be a SEAL team operator was done. You Did know, you need I, that? I knew it right away. It's, it's one of these, it was instantaneous. I knew when the injury happened, I was done. Because I, I knew there's no way, I had small eustachian tubes anyways, genetically, and they do now, they could they could heal me now with technology, but back then they didn't have the technology um, to heal me. And I knew there's going to be no way I could do pressurized diving. If you can't do any pressurized diving, you're worthless, you know, in the teams. Um, so, uh, you know, here I am, just devastated. It also was the first time in my young life that I had ever truly had a real injury to the human body, as we define it. As I define it in the system that we're that I teach now, it is something that um, – it doesn't require pain. We, we don't care about whether or not something hurts or not. It truly decremented a function, a sensory system of the human body or a structure of the human body. And I had no control over it, meaning I couldn't will my way out of it. I couldn't gut my way out of it. I mean, I had taken a lot of hard hits in training and prior parts of life. I'd done martial arts. I'd done a lot of contact sports. And I could work my way through pain. 
But an injury is something different. An injury is basically when your body betrays your brain and, and you have no control over anything other than dealing with the affected area of your body. And I had no idea. At that time, it absolutely ended my career as I saw it. And I had no idea this would be a gateway into what I do now. And that injury to the human body would become so important. But I think the reason I'm so passionate about it also is because I literally, it, it destroyed my ability to participate in something that I literally had trained for most of my young life. And um, I saw how quickly bigger, faster, and stronger is taken out by injury. Um, and so it, those became kind of founding principles. I did, of course, you know, looking back at my 21, 22 year old self, then you, you couldn't have told me that I was devastated. But uh, anyways, then what happened was really interesting. So here I am, this broken, you know, um, buds trainee. And I had done very, very well in training, as I said. And I have to say what was really nice about the teams were the officers there liked me a lot. And they kept me around. They made sure that I got assigned to uh, Intel school. They sent me to Intel school. And then they had a slot for me as a special warfare intelligence officer. So I'm not a SEAL, but I still got to work exclusively in the special warfare world. And just by happen chance, I, I got put in a command, a new command that had just come up because after uh, – after Grenada, um, it was really understood that the special operations communities were all acting independently and not talking to each other. And communication and everything was really screwed up. So they came up with a Joint Special Operations Command, or USOCOM. Joint Special Operations is, is, was another group. Uh, but uh, And that combined everybody together. In my command, the admiral I worked for, he was the representative for all of the Navy for the SEAL teams uh, in, that, in that unified command. So all of a sudden, they call it going purple. And what that just means is I was literally in the first command that was integrating in with the Army, the Air Force, and all special operations uh, uh, assets, as well as government agencies it was just a crazy time and from 1987 on when they created the command. Uh, all sorts of, you know, really interesting stuff was going on. And I was at this command with all senior operators from the SEAL teams. The Admiral picked, like, the best of the best to be there. And I certainly wasn't one of them. I was just this, this kid doing intel that they, by having me there, they didn't have to have an active duty SEAL on there. And, and, the SEALs are a very small group, especially back then. I think we had like maybe less than 2,000 active duty team guys. And we were in this huge command now where the Army had like 30,000, you know, operators. We had just, you know, barely a couple thousand. And everything back then was driven by numbers. So having me as a young ensign, I literally was an ensign. I wasn't even a JG yet, assigned a intelligence role that really was for somebody probably three or four ranks ahead of me uh, at minimum. Um, it was, it was unusual, but I had great people guide me and, and um, you know, I, I did well. Now where this plays into everything is that particular group was understanding, Hey, the Berlin wall came down. They were understanding that the world's changing and that 
combat's going to change. We're going to go back to doing more house to house. There's going to be more. It's not going to. We're not going to have be up against this, you know, graduated Soviet threat, you know, where it's the, the monolith versus monolith, and that, um, you know, we have to stop thinking in a purely conventional and, and nuclear fashion. We have to go back to thinking about, you know, kind of like almost some. Vietnam type training that well training that we hadn't done since Vietnam, which is you know basically um, what you're seeing today. You know a lot of the urban fighting that you're seeing today, and uh, you know close in fighting. And so they started looking for opportunities to uh, to train that. And we did some pilot courses. And one of the things they wanted to look at was upgrading the hand to hand combat training. And so this group of these legends invited me. And the main reason they invited me was, you know, growing up as a Navy brat, uh, we basically did a lot of martial arts at all the bases that we were, we would come to. It was one of the consistent things that uh, was always there. There was always a Marine teaching judo. There was always, you know, um, somebody teaching, you know, Tung Sudo or Taekwondo. Um, it's mostly Korean arts, Korean and Japanese that were available to you back then. It was prior, you know, it's all prior to the UFC and MMA. Um, so I grew up and I had, I had a couple of black belts, but I was just this young kid. The reason I think they had me was because one, they liked me. I did a good job. You know, I, I was good at my job. I, I was good at my job. I did a lot of, um, uh, uh, briefings that people appreciated. And, um, so that, that was in my favor. The other thing was I was young, I was fit and I had a martial arts background, so I was kind of a convenient meat puppet for them to use. You know, I had zero uh, experience, I had zero uh, combat experience. I had no business being in with that group, but as a part of that group, these guys started to look at all various forms of martial arts and combat sports for the SEAL teams back then. And, you know, we were literally bringing guys from all over. And what was really interesting to watch was there's a lot of great stuff that we got to see but a lot of it fell apart when you had to integrate back in with using tools you know using using your kit that you carried using um you know uh, integrating firearms integrating you know edged weapons any of that stuff it, it it wasn't as simple um you know and universal we were really looking for something that was absolutely synergistic that it worked with or without tools with or without equipment we really wanted the operator to be able to be in, you know, torn down to their basically their their under underwear, and then, you know, with their brain, their body, they could protect themselves. And that the same principles that they learned there, they got even better when they added all their equipment back to, to, together. That was kind of the idea that we were trying to portray. Um, nobody was really hitting the mark. Like I said, there's some great martial artists. There was some great. Uh, you know, practical fighters that we, we got to train with, which which were great. But it was weird. It ended up a DEA buddy called me up when I was working at the command one day, and I'd done a lot of work briefing the DEA because we worked a lot together on um, narcotics uh, uh, you know, issues that were going on down south. And one of my local DEA buddies called me up, and he, they thought it was hilarious that we were back then that we were really looking at hand-to-hand combat because they thought it was just like ridiculous um you got to remember like this is pre everything that we know today so they thought we were beyond that, is that yeah the, the idea back then was basically if you got if if it got down to hand-to-hand you made a mistake 
you know, you're already screwed. It was really weird thinking. Um, and it, it, to an extent, there's still some of that, uh, that, that people under, understand. And really, I see, I see the exact opposite. I see that you need to have, teach somebody basically how to use their brain and their body first. And if you, you can learn a lot from somebody that way. If you train them, uh, if they train them well in hand to hand combat in some sort, some form of, of using their brain and their body, uh, for justified lethal force, you know, that, that we're talking about, you know, as a soldier or as an operator, um, then you can really vet people really well. You can learn a lot in that arena that you don't have to go into the higher risk areas where you're having guys, you know, basically uh, learn live weapons and explosives um, if they really can't cut the mustard. And, uh, you know, I, the the targeting, if, if you're correct, the targeting, the same targeting that you would use in um, hand-to-hand combat would be just as useful when you're um, using you know, other tools like a knife or a firearm, you know, you, you understand where in the body you get a result. That that's really the big thing. And, uh, but it was still, we were, we were premature. These guys knew it because they were all Vietnam era and black ops guys who had done a lot of work. They understood how important it is to know how to use your, your body. And they also knew all the, all the problems. So my DA buddy, when he called me, he told me about this place that literally I was living in San Diego. I was in part of San Diego called Pacific Beach. And he told me about a guy. He said, yeah, they call him the mean master or whatever. You know, some weird thing. He said something. He goes, "Uh, we trained with him. He's, you know, he basically, he basically said to me, he goes, this guy's a real asshole, but you'd probably like him because you get along with assholes. (laughs) And, uh. And what he meant was, I took it as I take that as a compliment, and it, it is true. Uh, I find that some of the best pe- people that have the best information, oftentimes, are really the they're not the most socially popular people. They're not the most the most not the most pleasant people, oftentimes, um, that have really good information. And and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with an individual that is. Uh, you know, dogmatic in, in what they teach. Um, if, if I feel it's because they passionately believe what they believe. And, um, I don't, I don't mind people that don't, can't suffer fools. You know, I, I don't, I don't mind that. A lot of people get really bent out of shape around individuals like that. But I found that that's oftentimes where the best info comes from. This guy he told me about was definitely like that. Now I went over there on, uh, I think it was on a weekend. And it was closed. It was this dingy little, like, 900-square-foot place. It just had carpet on, no mats or anything. And I looked in. I wasn't impressed at all. you got to realize, I mean, we're seeing some world-class people flown in, you know, teaching us hand-to-hand combat and, um, you know, uh, martial arts and stuff. And the only thing that got me to go back was there was a trifold up there. And it was uh, just a little blurb that he had out there. And I read the guy's bio and he, it wasn't, he wasn't a super impressive bio. He wasn't trying to be that way. But the one thing he did say was that in Vietnam, he was a member of, you know, 173rd Charlie Company. And I was like, oh, where? 173rd, that was the, that was the group that Westmoreland just kept out in the jungle. Those guys were, you know, a bunch of tunnel rats and just hard guys. I mean, they were legendary in, in there. And I said, okay, well, I'll come back. 
and sure enough, I came back, and everybody there that was training, they were all like college kids. They were in geese, kind of traditional, almost like judo geese, but there was nothing traditional about what they were doing. I mean, I looked over, and I remember one of the first things I saw was one guy coming up, striking a guy on the side of the neck with his forearm, grabbing uh, reaching up and grabbing him by the hair, and simultaneously, as he grabbed him by the hair and pulled him down, a knife came out of nowhere, and he just started stabbing this guy in the neck. Um, well, you know, a rubber knife, you know, simulating it. And it just, everything I looked at, the velocity was measured, but it literally looked like a slow motion prison riot, you know, brawl. I mean, real violence, you know, I, I'd, I'd seen. And it was. It was crazy because here I was, this multi-level black belt, you know, quote unquote, thinking I had some pretty good information under my belt. And I knew right then and there that those kids had more real knowledge than I had just by the way they were moving, where they were going. They were accessing areas. The only time I'd seen stuff like that was when I'd seen real street violence, you know, growing up, you know, hanging out with my uncles. My uncles were kind of rough guys. And... I'd, I'd seen some of that back in my, my family's originally from Boston. These guys, these guys were mimicking that, so I f- thought that was really interesting. When so I met, you were when you were there looking at this Tim, were you for you were scoping them out for a program for the military, or was this for you? Oh hell personally? no! Oh hell no! You, you got to understand. I mean, I'm this knucklehead. You know, I think I was still at Ensign back then when I saw when I met when when I went into that place. And I just did it because my DEA buddy, I had a lot of respect for my DEA buddy, and, and he wouldn't waste my time. So I figured I'd go check this guy out, but I'm not expecting anything. Um, and, oh, by the way, yeah, I thought it was really cool and it was really great. I didn't say anything for at least three months to the command because you got to understand, I, I got zero experience. I, I'm lucky enough that these guys think enough of me to have me come in and train with them. I didn't want to blow that. Yeah, I already, yeah. <laughs> I already felt like I, I still felt like a loser because I couldn't get through training because I blew my ears. Um, you know, I so I was dealing with all of this. You know, I'm not good enough to pass this on type stuff. You know, you're a young, you're a young guy, and literally, I'm going to go tell these combat legends. Oh, hey guys, by the way, <laughs> I, I found the guy, and he's right around the corner here in PB. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah not going to happen. You know. But what happened was I started to I started to train with this guy on a regular basis and I loved it and it was really fun and what happened was we would train two to three times a week at the base with uh, with my staff members you know my guys we would train formally and they started noticing I started doing things differently moving differently using tools differently and one of the senior chiefs just looked at me and go what are you doing. I said, what do you mean, senior chief? He goes, what are you doing? He said, you're moving different. You're doing so. Who are you training with? He could just tell. And I said, well, I'm training with this guy. Well, who's this guy? They got into me right away. They're like, you know, who's this guy? And I said, well, it's the DA. My DA buddy told me about. What does he do? What you know? And so I gave him the the, the read right away. I said, well, this is what he is. Here's his background. And they knew 173rd right away because I had a lot of senior. Um, you know, nom, nom guys there. And they quickly said, listen, you got to bring them in. We got to bring them in. We're going to put them in the skiff. We're going to ask them some questions. We're going to see, you know, what this is all about. And 
you know, I was nervous because the one thing I hadn't shared with anybody was, uh, yeah, this guy's former Vietnam vet, and yeah, he was in a pretty hardcore unit, but he kind of hates the military. <laughs> he's not like uh, he's not real big, and oh, in particular, he can't stand the SEALs. He thinks they're a bunch of glory hounds, you know, um, which he proudly told me all this, and so. I, you know, I knew this in the back of my mind, just going, oh, man, you know. Uh, so, sure enough, I set it up for him to come in, and I got, I, you know, and he was a, you know, he's a good dude. I mean, he, he understood. He understood this was a cool thing, and he wasn't going to be a jerk to the SEALs or anything. So, you know, he came in. It was kind of like the old Maxwell Smart thing, you know, it goes through like four, four layers of getting checked in into the, the secret compartmentalized information um, facility skiff and uh, sure enough it locks down all the, the team guys are there and they just start asking him questions and he passes with flying colors on the combat stuff that they were asking him about just just nom what he did and everything and they knew some similar people um, but what sold it was the question that they asked him which I had never heard before prior to this was apparently there was a shipboarding incident uh, where terrorists had taken over a ship. These guys, uh, it was you know, then called SEAL Team 6, responded. Uh, and you guys have seen like you know how guys stack up around the door and go in a typical special operations mm-hmm. group. Well, this guy's, you know, a door in a ship is called a hatch. So these guys blew the hatch. They go through the door. Second man in gets tied up by one of the bad guys, literally tied up in the in the hatchway in such a way that his gun is jammed. I think he was carrying it. I think it was an MP5 that this guy had back then. This guy jammed him up in the, in the hatchway, and the rest of the team couldn't get in. There's no way for them to get in. Number one man is fighting for his life in there against everybody. So, you know, they gave a scenario, and nobody really had come up with any useful answers to what could have been done this guy upon hearing it my instructor hears it not only did he understand that you know what was going on he he didn't even wait till the end where they could you know finish out the scenario and he basically had everybody stand up re we did it right in the doorway there we you know we we demoed it and sure enough when the guy um, got grabbed, he looked at the guy that, that was the number two man that got grabbed, and all he said was, he goes, I need you to sit down right now. And the guy just dropped back, sat down. His MP5 all of a sudden goes center line, right? And the guy pulls him out of the doorway, and everybody comes in. So in real life, the drop back that we do now, we, you know, it's, it's kind of a principle that we have on, on dealing with uh, a re- retention of firearms. That was the first question that he asked, and that was the first thing that uh, that we solved. So it wasn't a punching, kicking thing. It was literally a combat question, and it was really on how to use your 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 body and everything. So it was a really good first meeting. That it really impressed everybody. You know, this guy understood arcs and angles really like nobody I've ever known. He was able to, you know translate stuff right away so this is the first time in, in all the training that we had been doing up to that point where we saw something that literally was synergistically working with the tools that we worked with you know and i say we 
I mean the teams. I don't mean me personally because I was just an Intel guy. But uh, it was really interesting to watch these guys, and they immediately signed them up for a pilot course. And, you know, I ended up becoming a military instructor in the course. But more importantly, we did a uh, – because back then, force multiplication was the big thing in training. And we did a train-the-trainer program because the whole idea was to have operators training operators, not to always have to have an outside group training. So from 1989 to probably 95, we did over 200 – we trained over 200 people throughout all special operations to be uh, level level one and two trainers of the program and uh, they trained, you know, thousands of people after that, thousands of units. And we got, you know, we even got a couple of the NATO units trained up and um, it was really, really a cool time to be part of everything. And that's how I got, you know, introduced to this. And, you know, I thought that would be a cool way for me to end out my career. I was going to, right after uh, Panama, I went into, I left the command. I was done after Panama, and I went into ROT, not ROTC. I went into uh, reserves. I was going to do that for um, a little bit, and then I was going to take six months off, and then go to Wall Street. I had a buddy that wanted me to go out and work with him at a hedge fund, and that's kind of what my 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 degree was. I had an international uh, relations with a business minor, and so I'd always thought I was going to go do some finance work. Um, after, but I, I want to take six months off. I had enough cash put aside to where I could just kind of enjoy myself for six months before I went into a second career. And I get a call from the instructor that, uh, you know, was doing the, the program, the hand hand combat program. And he said, Hey, I'm getting a lot. He goes, I know you're going to go to wall street. He said, but, uh, would you mind helping me out for a month or so? Because I'm getting all these corporate inquiries. You know, because what would happen is we trained a bunch of guys in the special operations community, and of course, then some of them would leave. They'd end up and go work for other corporations. And back then, there was a lot of oil companies because there was a lot of exploration going on. There was kidnapping. There were security teams, pipeline teams, groups like that that were in these really dodgy areas of the world. And they need to be trained, not just in you know, traditional firearms and, and those skills, but also, you know, hand to hand. And we also trained a lot of executives during that time. So he was not really comfortable negotiating with corporate types. So I stepped in and I helped him negotiate. And one month turned into 12 years. It was amazing. It was just an amazing time because I got to meet power players and CEOs and I did far more you know we were kind of like a Blackwater before Blackwater uh, I, I did far more interagency and interesting work basically and uh, I, I worked with more groups as a contractor than I ever worked when I was in and I worked with a lot of people when I was in and and I got exposed to things and people that I never Ever, I just did this indirect path like this and ended up through hand-to-hand combat just doing some amazing things that, that just way, you know, my friends thought I, were, I was crazy, you know, because, of course, this is during the go-go years of being in a hedge fund, and I probably left, you know, unbelievable money on the table, but 
I don't regret it for a minute. I mean, just, uh, you know, the, the people I got to work with and got to do. But where it comes to, you know, that, that's kind of my background, but where, where really everything changed for me was my partner, basically, we parted ways, we parted ways right before 1997. Around 1999, basically, is when we, we, we were formally parted ways. And he just kind of wanted to, he was one of those guys that just started believing his own press and it was unfortunate. You know, he started ignoring a lot of the people that helped him. Um, and what I mean by that units, people like that, you know, now he could command much larger fees, but oh, he, yeah. but so he didn't want to go back and, and help the units that don't have those kind of budgets, but that made him, you know, and I, I tried to counsel him on what a, you know, ridiculous, you know, mistake this would be and there's just no no changing his mind um so we parted ways and you know i'm still very thankful for everything i learned from him but i also realized that he really wasn't client focused so i was off and i started doing some other work i, I kind of gave up the whole industry for about a year year and a half until people started contacting me and saying hey he's not really training people anymore would you would you mind you know training again so i contacted him and just basically said hey listen a lot of people are asking for training why don't we just work some agreement out and he basically told me in a very not so nice way to go screw myself <laughs> and, and yeah it was but that's the type of like i said you know it goes back to that i get along with <laughs> you know i wasn't surprised by that you know he was very uh he was very he had very much a scarcity mindset you couldn't see that this was actually a good thing that we could, you know, work out. I, I told him, I go, we, we've spent so long building this program. Why, why would you want to just throw it away? But you know, you can't, you can't get through to some people. So I ended up, you know, doing some training, and I was asked, and it was fun because then, because by not having to train under him, I was free to sit there and really look at the program and say, okay, with nothing held back, you know, with, with no, no preconceived notions, what's the best way to deliver this information that gives the client the best result? And that's kind of where, you know, target focus training started coming together. And, and the whole idea of injury came right back. The idea that that's the most important thing. The most important thing is that, you know, the only thing that changes anything to, in, a, in a truly facing grievous bodily harm situation is if you can put an injury on the other guy and an injury bypasses bigger, faster, and stronger. 